What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Iraq Legacy of War, brought to you by Intelligence Squared. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. In this limited series, we're looking at the legacy of the war in Iraq 20 years after the US-led invasion in March 2003. Every day this week, we'll bring you a special episode. We'll start by looking at the road to war and the hopes that both Western politicians and many Iraqis had for the intervention, before analysing what went wrong, the destruction of a nation, and the rise of terror and extremism. To help us unpack it all, we'll hear from policymakers, security experts, military personnel, journalists, and Iraqi citizens. Join us as we look back at one of the most significant military interventions in modern history and address how its legacy has defined global tensions and foreign policy today. Our host for this episode is investigative journalist Manveen Rana. Uh, People throwing garbage uh, at the the statue. And uh, Lara Logan is uh, back online with us again right now. Lara, uh, you're right there. Tell us what's going on. Just in the last few moments, a U.S. Marine tank with a large chain has pulled the statue of Saddam Hussein down. This giant statue crumbled at the knees and toppled over. It's still hanging on the pedestal, but as it collapsed, a great roar came up from the cloud. There it goes. It has fallen down to the ground. It has come apart. The crowd is, is... is going mad, rushing towards it. They've been pelting it with stones. Uh, the Marines are, are trying to hold them back a little bit, but generally letting them run through and, uh, and express their emotions. People are jumping up and down on top of the statue on the ground, their arms raised in the air. It is an incredibly symbolic moment for the people of Iraq. Saddam Hussein's regime has been held in place by symbols like this across the city. Exactly 20 years ago today, on the 20th of March 2003, the US, along with its allies, launched a shock and awe bombing campaign on Iraq. It marked the start of the invasion and occupation of Iraq, a defining moment in modern history and contemporary politics. In today's episode, we'll be taking a deep dive into key moments on the road to war. From understanding Saddam's rule in the 1980s and the significance of the First Gulf War to the role of intelligence reports, domestic politics 
and the special relationship between Britain and America, between Blair and Bush. There's a lot to unpack, and to do this, I'm joined by two brilliant guests, Reynard Mansour, director of the Iraq Initiative at Chatham House, and Claire Short, who was Secretary of State for International Development from 1997 to 2003. Reynard and Claire, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Reynard, before we begin, just tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to London. We're actually speaking to you now from Iraq, but you are based in, in London. How did you come to be here? Well, it's, 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 I guess it's a long story. Uh, my father uh, was Iraqi and uh, part of the political opposition to Saddam Hussein, so very active, especially in the 1990s, as this group formed. And I remember growing up outside of Iraq, but being surrounded by many of these Iraqi leaders, the opposition, uh, known as the Iraqi National Congress, and this sort of rosy picture hope that once Saddam Hussein was removed from power, these would be the Democrats to uh, take over the country and lead it towards a democracy. But after we started going back to Iraq in, after 2003, what I started to see in reality on the ground across the country was a different picture, uh, not that rosy picture that was painted. And so I suppose I, my political consciousness began forming and I started to realize that those things that I had believed I had been told, uh, you know, growing up in, in, in exile opposition house were actually not transpiring. Uh, so that led me to want to study why I had this internal paradox, uh, which led me really to study. And I went to the UK where I studied, I did a PhD on Iraq and have worked on it since trying to make sense of, of it all. Well, you're, you're just the person to try and help us make sense of it too. Um, in a way, you know, your own personal journey through this is very much mirrored by a lot of the Western governments who went to war. To understand this moment 20 years ago, you really have to, to understand a bit of the historical context of Iraq. And that really comes down to the strong man who was in charge of it at the time. Tell us a bit about Saddam Hussein. Tell us about, you know, he came to power in 1979. Tell us a bit about him as a character and his hopes for Iraq and why people like your family and governments in the West were so opposed to him? Again, a very sort of long story of Iraqis uh, across the country feeling decades and decades of different conflict. Um, so Saddam Hussein comes to power at a time when Iraq is at its peak. Economically, it's doing very well. It has some of the best universities in the region. It, the state is, is, is at a peak. And of course, he immediately, you know, what happens to the neighboring country in Iran with the Islamic Revolution, Saddam immediately starts turning into a war leader and begins a war with Iran. And it turns out to be not a very quick invasion uh, or war, but a very long war, an eight-year war from 1980 to 1988. And that becomes a war of attrition and really just begins the, the, these conflicts. Right after Saddam's war with Iran, which he does not win, no side wins, you know, both sides lose in a way. A few years later, Saddam now, you know, Iraq is no longer that economic powerhouse, that regional powerhouse that it was before the war with Iran. Saddam then invades another neighbor, invades Kuwait in 1990. And again, the, this is when the international actors, the US, uh, the UN, begin 
a, a policy of, of confronting Saddam, beginning with removing Saddam from Kuwait, removing Iraqi forces from Kuwait, re- repelling back this, inva- this invader. And then since then, really applying punitive measures to Saddam. The north of Iraq after 1991 becomes a safe haven where a predominantly Kurdish population live, the Kurdistan region. But also you have a decade or more of sanctions now sort of applied to Iraq. So Iraq is turned into a pariah state. The sanctions really hurt the ordinary people. No, And, and I think that's the most important part. You had 500,000 children died because sanctions couldn't uh, they stopped medication and, and, and essential health services. So when these sanctions were applied, Saddam and his inner circle found ways around it. The smuggling networks increased uh, and, and, and you, you, know, you had oil and gas and other products being smuggled through Jordan and other uh, neighboring countries. The people who really were hurt by the sanctions were the Iraqi people, those not in Saddam's inner circle. Uh, and it became a very difficult time. You know, you had massive queues just to get bread and you hope you could get bread for your day so you could feed your family. So really, Iraqis, the country just for them transformed from such a peak in the 70s in a way to just utter destruction and despair by the 1990s as Iraq became a pariah state. How was Saddam Hussein and his his family, how were they viewed by ordinary Iraqi people? So to a large extent, there was, you know, it's, it's often referred to as a republic of fear. So he was a dictator. It was a totalitarian regime, which meant that you didn't really have democratic freedoms, sort of liberal freedoms. Anyone in the opposition was subject to coercion. And so you had to kind of keep your head down and and, and live as much as you could your every day uh, in in hope that, you know, you stay out of the line of fire from Saddam and his inner circle, his two sons, uh, as well as the the, the wider sort of circle that would be the Saddam's parts of it. So he was viewed as a dictator. And and that's why if you speak to a lot of Iraqis, once we get into the build up towards the war, many Iraqis were sort of pro removing Saddam, especially certain Iraqis. Of course, the Kurds in the north of Iraq had faced chemical weapons attacks. Tell, tell us a bit about that. Tell us about the persecution of the Kurds by Saddam Hussein. Around the end of the Iran-Iraq war, Saddam turns his guns and his weapons and missiles to those domestically who he feels are a problem, a target. And very famously in this town of Halebcha, he launches chemical weapons um, in 1988. And that has massive, of course, as you can imagine, massive destruction to an entire population in, in, in that area. And this persecution continues against the Kurds, which is why a few years later, the UN comes in to create a safe haven because Saddam was such a danger to those in, in northern Iraq. At the same time as well, in the south, in 1991, you also have you know, an intifada, a kind of uprising, this time of Shia uh, Islamist groups, but also Shia in general, again, trying to bring down the dictator. And he meets that, you know, Saddam meets that in a a very harsh way as well. And he effectively uh, reasserts his coercive apparatus. You know, the the, the famous Mukhabarat, the intelligence service of, of Saddam was strong and they were able to silence dissent and they grew increasingly paranoid 
throughout these periods when you start having these different uprisings that emerge. So you have this culture of fear, you have huge groups of, uh, huge ethnicities, groups of, of the Iraqi population who have ample reason to, to want the end of the Saddam Hussein regime. In the West, meanwhile, Claire Short, at that point in the 90s, there had been a number of international conflicts such as Rwanda, Kosovo, which had started to shape political views around a moral case for intervention in order to stop genocide. And then in 2000, Tony Blair had led a successful intervention in order to stop the civil war in Sierra Leone. At the time, you were working in the cabinet alongside Blair. Can you tell us a bit about the sort of conversations you were hearing around these conflicts and around the idea of the need to intervene and and how they shaped Tony Blair's views? Well, first of all, there wasn't an intervention in Rwanda. There was a horrendous genocide in 1994, killed a million people in three months in a systematic, organised way. And there was a very weak UN presence there that wasn't allowed to do anything. So that was a disgrace to the whole international community. In the case of Sierra Leone, there'd been a civil war type situation and then there was a UN peacekeeping effort and the UK went in actually to prop up the UN. So there wasn't a war there either. That's much misdescribed. There was an intervention that helped stabilise the UN presence and help rebuild the country. That was a sort of successful, but it wasn't a war. And then we get to Kosovo and NATO's trying to negotiate to, because you're getting the breakup of Yugoslavia and bloodshed and suffering. And then uh, Milosevic, the Serbian leader, is trying to take over Kosovo and mistreat the people. And NATO acts. So Blair's very keen, but so is Clinton. And there's a lot of international support. That is criticised about whether it's a breach of uh, of international law, though famously Kofi Annan said, I don't want to be Secretary General of the UN to uphold the freedom of states rather than the human rights of people. Um, so there was different opinions on that. And of course, it was brought to an end by the Russians and the French cooperating and ending it. So it wasn't an all-out war of total destruction. So I think it would be misdescription to, to say that Tony Blair saw this wonderful success of uh, liberal intervention and therefore was driven to do what he did in Iraq. There was an international debate about maybe a power should be taken for the UN to declare some countries to not be governed in any way decently by their countries and then the international community might intervene. But that never came to anything and after Iraq no one anymore believed that that was a good idea. Do you think he was quite buoyed by the success of Sierra Leone, though? I think it was good for his reputation, but I don't think it in any way, shape or form explains Iraq. And I think it has been misdescribed, actually, what happened in uh, in Sierra Leone, calling it part of Blair's wars. It was a UN operation. I mean, that's what it was, Yeah. Um, which the, the UK playing a very constructive, supportive role. I think, actually, after the attack... September the 11th, in the attack on the Twin Towers, Blair was deeply moved and absolutely determined he had to stand by America come what may. This mass terrorism is the new evil in our world. The people who perpetrate it have no regard whatever for the sanctity or value of human life. And we, the democracies of the world, 
must come together to defeat it and eradicate it. This is not a battle between the United States of America and terrorism, but between the free and democratic world and terrorism. We therefore here in Britain stand shoulder to shoulder with our American friends in this hour of tragedy. And we, like them, will not rest until this evil is driven from our world. I think that's the route into Iraq. And then he is determined to be close to America and supportive of America. And I think the disaster of Iraq was hubris in America and anger that they just wanted to get someone. Because after all, it wasn't just Iraq. The whole region had dictatorships, cruel dictatorships. You know, Saudi Arabia is a cruel dictatorship, but we weren't going to invade them. But Iraq was defying Western opinion. And then they had to fabricate a case for war. I mean, I think the biggest tragedy of all is there was no emergency. So there was a possibility of taking time and preparing properly. And indeed, the comparison with Milosevic in Serbia, you know, you could have declared Saddam Hussein to be a war criminal and that he should go to the international court and encourage the people of Iraq to send him there, as happened with Milosevic. There were alternative ways, but America was full of anger, set its date. There was no emergency, set its date. And really, Blair was determined to go with America come what may. And so you've got lots of deceit and lack of preparation on the route to the war. Well, Take us back to that. You know, you mentioned that 9-11 was this great moment that galvanised Tony Blair and it sort of cemented that relationship that he was building with George W. Bush. Tell us about that relationship. How close were they and how key was it to the decision to go into Iraq? Well, I think you have to, you know, since the Second World War, UK governments have tried to always be very, very close to the United States of America and show, you know, Britain's still powerful, it's the best friend of the greatest power on the earth. Now we're no longer a big power, or we're a middle-ranking power. So that's in all the bits of the UK government system. It's not just Blair. Now, Blair believed in it and was passionately moved after the attack on the Twin Towers and wanted to be very close to George Bush. But yes, they got on. But I think to suggest that it all happened just because he liked Bush... That would, that would be wrong. I think virtually any prime minister would have tried to go with America. And after 9-11, in America, you know, whilst we sort of had some people making the case for liberal intervention in Britain, in America you sort of also had the rise of the neocon movement. Just remind our listeners what that was about. Well, this is the end of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War. America's the great power in the world. It can determine everything lots of hubris. The neoconservatives thought America could intervene wherever it wanted and change the regime and bring democracy. And they did have secret plans to before 9-11, but different ways, strategies for overthrowing Saddam Hussein. So that was on their agenda anyway. And it was, it was kind of hubris and arrogance that ended up bringing so much destruction to the people of Iraq. I think the the thing that I find unbearable thinking about it is if, if it had all been taken more carefully and more steadily and more consultatively and looked at other examples and what had worked, 
Iraq might have been in a different place and a much better strategy could have could have evolved. But they just set a date and I think they believed their own propaganda and thought Saddam Hussein was so hated, the minute he fell, the whole country would be happy and would cooperate with America. And that's really what Putin say, thought in, in Ukraine. I mean, it's people don't behave like that. But I think they believe their own propaganda and thought, and they believe what the Iraqi opposition told them, who were out of the country. And, of course, the people were glad for a minute that he fell and then soon very unhappy at the, the way the occupation proceeded. And it's interesting, you talk about sort of the process into it, you know, there, it went to the UN for a second resolution, but there was, it did feel like there was a, a, a rush into war. You've pinpointed part of that by, by explaining that the neocons wanted regime change in Iraq even before 9-11. Just talk us through, there was a debate in America, effectively, even in, inside the Bush administration. Just talk us through who were the key figures in, from the neocon persuasion and who, who were the ones who wanted to slow down the process? Well, all these, Cheney, Rumsfeld, all those senior figures around Bush, they were all neocons. I mean, there's this famous story that when the news comes through of the attack on the Twin Towers, Cheney immediately says to Bush, that's it, we're going for Iraq. So that wasn't a reaction to what had happened and who did it, but here's our chance. Even though they weren't connected. They weren't connected, though there was false briefing that was put about to the public in America that Saddam Hussein had a role in the attack on the Twin Towers, which was completely untrue, of course. And Reynard, at the same time, there is uh, there are some key figures who are very important to you know the road to war in the West, who are effectively Iraqi opposition figures who are in exile. Tell us about them, you know, particularly Ahmed al Chalabi and and the role that they were playing in shaping the conversation around war. It's a difficult one to square because on one hand, you know, of course, the invasion of Iraq in 2003 was rushed and kind of it seemed like a bunch of mistakes and people not knowing what they're doing and just living every day uh, on, on that day without a plan. But if you look back, there have been people planning for what post-Saddam Iraq would look like. And that was the opposition, the Iraqi opposition, this official opposition, which was funded, formed, you know, and, and supported by the U.S. primarily. And this group met uh, in, in, in the early 1990s. It met in 1992. It met throughout the 1990s in London, in the U.S. It would meet in also in the Kurdish areas of northern Iraq that was now a U.N. safe zone. And so you have almost a decade of this group working with the Americans and other allies to come up with a plan. And I mean, we'll get into this in, probably later on. But, uh, you know, there was a vision and that was what the opposition's role was. This opposition, as you, you mentioned, Ahmed al-Chalabi, who became the sort of leader of it, primarily because he was closest to the neocons and closest to Bush. Uh, he became the face of it. He, you know, he, the Bush administration found him very compelling and found his case very compelling, but obviously he also fit with their interests. And, and so he became the perfect type of figure. And he would tell them that Iraqis are on board they will support the U.S. We need to remove Saddam. Saddam's done this, this, and this, and this. Of course, Chalabi himself is, is, is someone who, for many years, uh, was trying in different ways to bring down Saddam. But he was one of many different groups in the opposition. And primarily, who formed the opposition, these di different groups, the biggest actors were 
the sort of Kurdish parties, two primarily two Kurdish nationalist parties, the Kurdistan Democratic Party and the Patriarch Union of Kurdistan, two of which had, you know, basically been fighting Saddam for, for, for years. And also these, you know, Shia Islamist groups. Uh, the biggest one at the time being the Islamic Supreme Council of Iraq, ISKI, it used to be called, this, uh, had a different name, Supreme Council of Iraq, um, which was formed in, and, and funded in Iran. So you had this interesting coalition of opposition, some of them in Washington, you know, Iraqis who are being supported by Washington, but also some in Iran that are being supported by Iran and they would meet each other. And in those years, when they meet each other, they are the ones who decided on how Iraq should look like after 2003. Critically... But they didn't have any following in the country, did they? They, they kind of clung the Americans into thinking they could deliver the country. Exactly. And, and that's it. And critically, critically, they had not been to Baghdad and you know Iraq for decades. They were strangers in, in, in Iraq. And so they were faced with a problem. How do they then go back to this country where they, there's a generation that they don't know and somehow represent them? But that was, you know, something for later. What they, what they needed to do was remove Saddam and build a system that could empower them in a place where they had become strangers because of their ex political uh, exile. And Reynard, they were also, you know, for a country they hadn't visited for years, they were also often relied upon as some of the intelligence sources that were informing the debate around whether whether the West should go to war. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, this is a kind of convergence of interest that sometimes then goes beyond what is actual fact. If you you know the US and 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 you know, the UK and others are relying on these Iraqi sources that have a very clear political mandate to invade and to remove Saddam that's not that's not re a reliable source and the opposition was you know it wasn't just these political parties but you had journalists and magazines and a whole media empires of opposition figures informing not just western leaders but western public as well right on saddam on weapons of mass destruction most people believed you know that saddam did have weapons of mass destruction outside of you know the people i mean outside of iraq and so the role of the opposition was a lobby group in a way. And anytime a lobby group is, is offering intelligence, you have to question the impartiality. But we had an inquiry into the intelligence. Remember the famous minute, the intelligence is being fixed around the, the programme. Um, I mean, of course, the Iraqi opposition were trying to feed in intelligence and some of it was just not true. But we have our own intelligence agencies, but they were all just trying to support the project. Whereas the, the raw intelligence wasn't saying that there was any immediate crisis. And, you know, we'd had weapons inspectors in there looking for WMD for years. And if you remember, because of the UN resolutions, the weapons inspectors went back under Blix and Blix started off thinking there was still something there. And then as he looked and looked and found nothing and was asked to do tests to see if disposed of chemical weapons or chemicals, uh, might be in the sand. He started to report to the Security Council that there wasn't anything there, and then they turned on Blix and attacked him. So the truth, if it had been known, surely, if there had been more skepticism of the American Congress in the autumn of 2002, that war could not have been waged, at least not, at any rate, not on the basis of weapons of mass destruction. 
and I don't think they could have persuaded the American Congress or the British Parliament to authorize them to go to use of armed force if it had not been for weapons of mass destruction. I mean, you can see that they, they didn't really want to go through the UN and they weren't really relying on the intelligence. That was just a way of getting a good excuse for war and, if possible, to do it through the UN. They were fixing it all from the beginning. Claire, just remind us of that, because, you know, this time 20 years ago, um, I remember the headlines, the the visceral debate in this country about WMD, weapons of mass destruction, the claim that Saddam Hussein could use them within 45 minutes. Just remind people who don't remember it clearly, just remind us, what sort of intelligence were you being told? As, as a member of cabinet at the time, what were you being told was showing the clear case for war? Well, I, I saw the raw intelligence, you know, before it's put into a coherent document that just comes across your desk, you know, regularly. Some some members of the cabinet see and some don't. Those with a foot in uh, foreign policy, I suppose. And there wasn't a comp- there wasn't a crisis. I think everyone admits that now, but it's very important because there wasn't anything that was about to happen, and therefore everything could have taken more time and been planned better and not created the chaos that it it did create. So then they generated their own crisis, and of course Blair couldn't have gone with Bush without some attempt to go through the UN. He knew that and he was trying to persuade Bush to go to the UN and the Americans weren't even particularly keen to go through through the UN. So they got Blix back in and they did believe their own propaganda. They did believe there was some kind of chemical and biological stuff there. Otherwise, why had Saddam Hussein resisted the weapons inspectors and if he'd cooperated, maybe sanctions would have been lifted and the whole country would have been better off. So they did believe that. But when Blix started to conclude there wasn't anything, then they just lied and attacked him. It was intolerable to find that their excuse for war didn't stand up. I mean, that's part of the dishonesty that made everyone so unhappy. And it's really interesting that you say, you know, they clearly believed that there were there were weapons of mass destruction. Where do you think the failure happened? Was it the intelligence services or was it the spin put on what they were being told by by Downing Street. You know, we sort of, we were given a dodgy dossier which Downing Street put together of trying to explain the case for war. Alistair Campbell put it together. And we did have an inquiry under Butler into the way the intelligence was misused. And, you know, there is on the record, you know, after since the war, the way in which intelligence was manipulated and misused. But the dodgy dossier was put together under Alistair Campbell's leadership. And then, you know, this briefing to the press that there could be, I mean, it started implying it was going to be nuclear, an explosion over London in 45 minutes. That was all just completely made up. If there was anything, it was chemical and biological and it wasn't flying over London. That just became spin. But lots of decent people believed it, of course. I mean, decent ordinary folk across the country. But they knew that they were spinning us into the war. They believed the war was for a good purpose, but they told all sorts of untruths to get us there. And when they couldn't get the agreement of other countries in the UN, they they then twisted that. And they'd said, oh, if we get the weapons inspectors back in, that doesn't automatically give us authority for a war, no automaticity, these famous words. And then when the weapons inspectors didn't give them what they wanted, and they couldn't get the second resolution, they went anyway. So the promise to go through the UN fell apart. And so divisive, you know, France wouldn't agree. 
And of course, Britain was crucial to Bush because without Britain, they were doing it on their own and that would look very weak. That was Blair's potential power, but in the end, he was more desperate to go with America than use his power to get a more considered outcome, Or, in my view. And at the time, you know, as you say, Britain did insist on, on the UN, uh, you know, a second re- resolution from the UN, which didn't come together, but we still went to war. The question of whether it was a legal war is still fraught to this day, really. Just talk us through the sort of evidence in Cabinet that you were shown, what the Attorney General told you about why they justified it as a legal war. Well, of course, first of all, the, the whisper went around uh, Whitehall in, in this very fraught atmosphere leading up to when we know a date had been chosen for the war, that the British military had said without a legal opinion saying the invasion was legal, they wouldn't go because they didn't want to subject British troops to possibly getting before the International Criminal Court. And then the whisper went round that the Attorney General had said that there wasn't legal authority and one of the senior legal advisers in the Foreign Office resigned, if you remember, saying it wasn't legal. And this legal opinion none of us saw. And then just just before the invasion date, an abbreviated version of the legal opinion was put around the cabinet table, which was also turned into an answer to a parliamentary question in the House of Lords, and said, there is authority for war, there's no problem. So that was all very, very strange. And everyone thought, if there isn't legal authority, we're not going, and the British military wouldn't have gone. And later, after the war, the full legal opinion came out, there were full doubts about whether it was legal, and then a loophole was found to get Tony Blair to give a side assurance. So it was concocted, the legal authority, and was dubious. And I think most really serious and senior international lawyers consider the invasion of Iraq was a breach of international law. And people make the point all over, particularly the south of the world, that everyone goes on about Putin's invasion of Ukraine being a breach of international law, which it is, no question, and it's cruel too. But the West did it in Iraq, so the West only calls for support for international law when it likes it. That's a big critique across the world and why lots of the south of the world don't support the NATO position on Ukraine. Reynard, is that something you hear a lot? By turning our backs on the UN second resolution, by going to war regardless, was that the beginning of the rules-based system, the UN being you know, the, the final arbiter? Was that the moment the cracks started to appear in that whole system? I think certainly at the time, you know, post-Cold War, uh, US, UK, you know, as as said, with a good purpose, but also this idea that too big to fail, right? I mean, it would be so quick um, that, yes, I mean, international law has always been very political. I mean, the UN Security Council, which is the one that will ha- is, is, is the body that would determine is made up of, of, of these countries, but five of those countries, because they, they're at some point were powerful, are effectively those that decide what is legal or what is not. So there's a lot of gray area on this, but certainly the invasion of Iraq and its aftermath has had mass implications for Iraqis, mass implications for those in the region that were affected by it, and also for those living in the UK and the US um, 
a government that conducts an illegal war, but also a government that lies to its people. I mean, and that deception and the covering up of it has has had implications and I think has had repercussions for domestic politics, even in the UK or the US. A big reduction of trust in politics and politicians across the board, yes, I think. I just wanted to make another, going back to an earlier point, but there is a question on... Saddam didn't have weapons of mass destruction. And all he had to do was to say, come, I don't have weapons of destruction, don't invade, right? And so there is that question as to why did he also play into it? Why was it that he was playing around with the the inspectors? Why was it that there was this kind of uh, confrontation? And if you look at some of the interrogation, if you read some of the interrogation mem- you know, memos uh, around that question when Saddam was asked, it gives you a sense of just how weak Iraq was, right? And it goes back to that point, the history that we looked at. He took a country in 1979, which was, was at its peak, but by the late 90s, early 2000s, that you had a paranoid leader who was was over was looking over a country that was economically in shambles that was you know in, in all indexes was very low and, and and just in such a tough time but also his paranoia that maybe he felt that you know and he says this he felt that one of the only strengths he had was this question around does he have a bomb or not and he didn't even want his neighbors for example to 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 do that so it says a lot that you know a, a leader that didn't have something could have easily just said look i don't have them uh but didn't but i think we all know firstly we've said the western leaders did think he had something otherwise he would have said not and possibly got got rid of sanctions and he was obviously just blustering and pretending he had strength that he didn't have. But none of that excuses the way they went at it. Because given that he didn't have anything, there was plenty of time to plan the thing properly and find a way of getting him into the International Criminal Court and helping the Iraqis to liberate themselves. I mean, there were alternative scenarios. That's the tragedy. Definitely. I mean, the only the, the only point I'm making there is it does give you a glimpse into his mindset and the reality of, of where Iraq and Saddam was, uh, you know, on the eve of the invasion. And Claire, given the fierce debates around the legality of the war, the substance of, of the intelligence that we were being told about, just how popular was the invasion back then? You know, it's easy to look back now and think, you know, the whole country was marching out on the streets protesting. There were big protests, but just talk us through how popular it was It was with most people in Britain, but also in terms of Parliament and the sort of support it got across the benches. There was that massive demonstration on February the 15th, which was one of the biggest that there'd ever been in Britain against the war. I mean, there were some people who believed the government and believed Tony Blair and by and large, the Conservative Party in Parliament was happy to go along with it, you know, and that's the tradition. The Labour Party was desperately unhappy, and there was lots and lots of arms twisting to get people to vote for the resolution. And, of course, people were torn who didn't really believe that this is the right way to go but wanted to be loyal to their Prime Minister and their country. So it was a miserable business in, in Parliament with lots of people voting in a way they didn't wholeheartedly believe out of loyalty. And I've said since, 
I would have, you know, always said loyalty is a good quality, but I've seen loyalty misused in this case. That means, you know, blind loyalty is not a good thing. Well, I want to ask you more about that in just a moment. But before I do, Reynald, did you get a sense of, I mean, I know it's very difficult to tell, but could you get a sense of how popular the the idea of the invasion was amongst Iraqis? There has been polling, and the extent to one could trust that, uh, it does suggest that in March, you know, so on the eve and right directly after the invasion, almost two-thirds of Iraqis were in favour of, of, of the war. Certainly Iraqis outside of, of the country were as well. Yeah, we can sort of talk about whether polling is, is, is accurate or not. But if you look at there's a, there's a moment when Saddam's statue is being toppled, you know, shortly after the invasion, and you just see a sense of jubilation and a sense of celebration that a dictator has been removed. And I do think it's important to, to note that most Iraqis at that point were cautiously, very cautious, but cautiously wondering, is this for real? Have they actually removed it? I, I really think we should be careful. There's no doubt in anyone's mind that Saddam Hussein was an incredibly cruel dictator and not popular with with the Iraqi people than they would like to have seen him gone. But that that toppling of the statue and so on was done and arranged for American television. I mean, we were in the spin. And I think most Iraqi people wanted to be free, but they didn't want an American occupation, which is what most people wouldn't want. Yeah, I mean, that's for sure. I'm not saying that the Iraqis ever wanted occupation, but I think it's, it is safe to say in my experiences and, and the years that I've spent going around Iraq, that most, you know, who even today say we wish it never happened, do admit that on the eve of the invasion and the days after, they were in a way thinking, is this a time to celebrate? There was a sense of jubilation that a dictator has been toppled, but that very, very quickly turned into despair when they realized that you had looting and the military was, was, had, had been disbanded and you had violence and you had a complete mess. This was not the liberators. This was not the America and, 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 and the UK that they had thought would, would come and quickly give them democracy. This was something else. This was a brutal occupation and guns somehow bringing democracy, which was never going to work. But, you know, I think it's not just American propaganda to say that Iraqis across the country wanted Saddam gone and were cautiously looking. But they didn't want an American occupation. Definitely, definitely not. So there was there was just a brief moment where things could have got better. But as we know, they didn't. And we'll come on to more of that in episode two of this series. Before we do, though, Claire Short, I've got to ask you, you mentioned that moment of people's arms being twisted in order to get their support in Parliament. For you, just talk us through your personal journey on, on Iraq. Was there, was there ever a moment when you did support the government's decision? I thought throughout that if we could hold on to Blair and he could hold on to Bush, we might find a way of dealing with this crisis without an all-out war, you know, the more intelligent, planned approaches that I've talked about and examples like Milosevic in, in Serbia. And Blair kept giving us two different voices. Sometimes he was gung-ho, then he would go back and say, you know, we're going to use diplomacy and we're going to use the UN. So I was clear in my own mind that if we could find the good strategy, I would stick with it. 
And if not, I would leave the government. And then when the vote was forced through, I was about to leave and I'd booked my resignation slot in the House of Commons. And then Blair negotiated with me and said, is there anything that would stop you going? I know now he just didn't want Robin Cook and and I going on the same day. And I said that I think all that's left is that if we have a UN international lead on the occupation and not an American occupation, I think it might be beneficial. And he said, I can deliver that. And of course, that wasn't true. But uh, that's why I delayed my resignation a bit longer. What was the point when you thought you, you had to go through with it? You had to resign? When, if you remember, shortly after the invasion, the Bush came to Northern Ireland, they had a meeting there. Bush talked about the UN about six times, which he didn't normally do. I mean, that's what <laughs> that's what Blair could deliver for me. But they didn't mean that the... Because if there'd been a UN-supervised occupation with troops from the region and so on and so forth, we might well have had a totally different outcome. But he never tried that. It was never... America was never going to do that. America has very little respect for the UN and that particular government had no respect for the UN and they weren't going to hand the authority to the UN, even though they, people like Rumsfeld said they didn't believe in building up states. They wanted to leave straight away after they'd taken over. They just didn't plan it properly or think it through. They believed their own propaganda and the propaganda of the opposition that had been in America for such a long time and didn't really know what was going on inside Iraq. Well, we'll look at what went wrong once the war began in episode two. But thank you both so much. That was Claire Short and Reynard Mansour. This was episode one of the Intelligence Squared miniseries, Legacy of War. Do join us again for episode two, where we'll discuss the invasion, the occupation, and the failures of the war. I'm Manving Rana. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Iraq, Legacy of War, a mini-series by Intelligence Squared. Join us on the next episode of the series, where we'll be discussing the chaos that ensued once the American-led coalition invaded. All episodes of Iraq, Legacy of War are now available to Intelligence Squared premium listeners. If you would like to hear the rest of this series now, ad-free, please subscribe in the link in the show description. This series was produced by Farah Asat and Catherine Hughes, with artwork and editing from Catherine Hughes. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm Bea Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.